0: All right, now this Sunday we will continue with our series on the attributes of God. And we have come now to what the Puritan writer Thomas Watson called the sparkling jewel of God's crown. And that is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. It is an attribute which seems to have an excellence above every other attribute, if, you're, if you allow me, if you permit me to, to say such a thing. I know, of course, that every attribute is... is God is everything, all of these attributes at the same time. But in the Scriptures, we see this particular attribute, the holiness of God, being elevated, being exalted, even above every other attribute, as it seems. It's the only attribute who is... Uh, Thrice repeated, both in the Old and the New Testament. In the book of Isaiah, the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. And the same thing we see in the book of Revelation. The angels, the cherubim and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now, the Bible never says that God is love, love, love in in that sense. Even though God, of course, is love. And the Bible doesn't say that God is just, just, just. And we know, of course, that God is just. But this attribute, phrase repeated. It's a, in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a style for emphasizing, putting more emphasis on a word. They, they repeat the word over and over just to, to, to make sure that we understand that this is something important. It is as if we... Uh, When we write a text, when we write in a document in in Microsoft Word, we, we put something in bold, but this is like they have put it in bold and italics and underlined it at the same time. This is so important. Understand that this is an important word holy. Holy. God is holy. This is emphasized to the third degree in the superlative form. He's holy. He's holier. He is holiest. God. Is holy. The holiness of God is therefore of the utmost importance in the Bible and should be also to us. Now, how important was it to to the servants of God? We can see of, of uh, Moses and, and the the children of, of Israel as they had crossed the Red Sea. They had escaped the army of Pharaoh, and uh, the whole army had drowned in the sea. But the children of Israel had. Had walked through it on, on dry ground, and the response to this miraculous event you can read of in Exodus fifteen eleven, where Moses says like this if you want to turn there, please do Exodus fifteen eleven. Moses and the children of Israel sing a song of praise where they say, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic or glorious in holiness? awesome embraces, working wonders. God's holiness is glorious. If you want to glorify God, you must know what his holiness is, what it means. That is his glory. So what then can we know about the holiness or what? What does the Bible teach about holiness? Let's start with the word "holy." What do we know about that? The the Hebrew word for holy is kadash, I believe. That's the right pronunciation. And in Greek it's hagias. And the word has the meaning of being separate, of being cut away from something. The holiness of God is therefore not primarily a, a moral quality as we often think about holiness being sinless. But the holiness of God actually primarily is is, uh, as Louis Berkhoff helpfully explains, it's a fundamental idea of... Its fundamental idea is that of position or relationship existing between God and some person or thing. It's a positional thing. God is distinct from his creation, separate, positionally. We are not God. We will never ever be God, regardless of what the Mormons say. We will never even have a, 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 a sense of, of God. We will, Even though we will receive glorified bodies, we will not be little gods in that sense. We have all the, the, the uh, heretical doctrines of the, the prosperity gospel movement calling us little gods. We will never be gods, ontologically at least. It's impossible. Our nature prevents it. We cannot be that. Only God is holy in this sense. He's distinct, distinctly separate from us, from all creation. God is holy. So, God is holy positionally, but He's also holy morally, which is, again, what we normally think of when we talk about holiness. And these two aspects we need to have a little closer look on as we we study this, this attribute today. God's majestic holiness or positional holiness and God's ethical holiness his moral holiness God is morally holy so let's start with the first one his majestic holiness his majestic holiness as we as I already mentioned God is inherently great he's inherently above everything in creation positionally separate he, uh, he is uh, transcendently distinct from all creation he 's majestically unique. no one comes we have majesties in, in on the earth we have royalties and, and kings and queens and so on. but God is majestically unique. no one comes close to god 's majesty. It is on a different level, positionally different. We can say in this sense that That God's holiness defines all the other attributes. God's love is holy love. And God's anger is holy anger. God's grace is holy grace. God's wrath is holy wrath. All of the attributes, some of which we also in some sense have. We have some love. We have some grace. But God's grace and God's love and all the other attributes are holy. They are holy. Positionally, majestically distinct from all of creation. We talked about the omnipotence last time, the omnipotence of God, meaning that God is all powerful. Now we see powerful events in in creation. There isn't like we don't know about powerful things. There's uh, in the universe black holes, if you know about them, they are points in space with extremely powerful gravity. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's so powerful, it's hard to understand. It's almost hard to comprehend how, how powerful it is. Not even light can, can uh, uh, escape from black holes. But the power of black holes are not holy power. It's very, very powerful. It's more powerful than anything we, we can produce, but it is not holy power. God's power, God's omnipotence is holy power. It is, again, distinct from creation. It's positionally, majestically distinct from all of creation. And same thing again, as I mentioned, with the majesty of God. God is holy, majestically. We have kings and queens who have some kind of majesty, but God's majesty, majesty is holy majesty. Far above, positionally distinct from all the majesties of this world, God is King over all creation. Now, the majestic holiness of God brings with it a sense of unapproachableness for us human beings. We uh, we see His. Holiness, His majesty, and we, we, we understand, we see that we cannot approach Him in ourselves by our power, what, whatever we do or say or think, there is no way we can approach Him. He is so far above us, He's so distinct from us, majestically, positionally. We look at this attribute and we, we get the, a sense of. Uh, nothingness, absolute nothingness within us, unworthiness. We, how can we even approach a God of all creation? A God who is so holy, who is so majestic. How can we, small sinful creatures, come before such a God? Get a sense when we see this attribute that we are nothing. Nothing before the Lord. Nothing before God. God is so... So awful, and I don't mean it in a bad way. He is full of awe. When we see him, we we are filled with awe. He's awesome. He's awful. We can only cover our faces. We can only hide from him when we see him in all his majestic glory. We will see this in the scriptures. And let's turn there now for our first text from Isaiah chapter 6. The go-to text for the holiness of God. How the prophet Isaiah comes before the Lord or sees the Lord in a vision. Isaiah chapter 6. hope you're all familiar with this text. And if you aren't, well, I'll make you familiar now. It's the prophet Isaiah, his, his vision of the Lord in his temple, in his holy temple. So let's read from verse 1. In Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Let's, let's pause there for a moment. There's a lot of things to unpack here. I will not even try to unpack everything that we could possibly see in this, this text. But there are a few things I want to I mention here. First, that the vision that Isaiah has of the lorry is of him sitting highly exalted on his throne, on his throne. This is, as I mentioned, a fundamental aspect of God's holiness. He is above everything and everyone, majestic, positionally distinct from all creation. Not even the angels, the, the, the seraphim can be in the temple. The whole robe fills the, the temple, the temple room where he sits. He's majestic, he's exalted. He's sitting on a throne and his, whole, his robe fills the whole temple. With, I don't know if you, you have seen coronations of kings and queens when the, the now deceased Queen Elizabeth II was, was coronated back in the 50s, I believe. Very long time ago. Anyways, there's video footage of that. You can see his, her, or her long robe. There were multiple carriers of the, her robe. It's a sign of majesty. It's a sign of being majestic. And even though she had a very long robe and many people who needed to carry it, God's robe fills the whole temple. There's room for no one else. It's just God and his robe. You can't try to go into his, his, his throne room and you can't even make it in there. God is so majestic. God is so holy. So lifted up. He is above everything in creation. And it, by the way, just as a side note, you, you know from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, how, how the apostle John says, or he talks about the Isaiah's the vision of Isaiah. And he says that this is this vision that Isaiah has is of Jesus. This is of Jesus. Amen, brother. Jesus is God. Jesus is this glorious God that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. This is Jesus in his glory. The glory that God does not share with anyone else. Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. Now this doesn't really have anything to do with today's subject. But I I wanted to mention it. It's so important. It is so fundamental for understanding that Jesus is truly God. He is truly God. He's not only a man. He's God. Anyway, let's get back to the text, Isaiah chapter 6. Second thing we can see here is that the seraphim, the seraphim is being described. And how are they described? If they have six wings. Why is this important? Why, why do we know that they have six wings? Let's see. They, with two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. These holy beings, these beings who are in the presence of God day and night, all the time, serving him, crying out, holy, holy, holy. These beings have all these wings for a purpose. They cover their feet. They cover their face. And they fly. Why do they need to cover all these things? Because God is holy. They cannot look at God unveiled. They must cover their face. If they are to be in the presence of God. His glory is so majestic. His holiness is so glorious. That they would would go out of existence. If they did not cover their face. With these wings. They are in the direct holiness. The glorious light of God. You remember from. From um, the book of Exodus. How Moses requested to see God. He was there on the mountain. And he requested to see God. He was granted his request, but only after he was put behind a rock. He was not allowed to be directly in the presence of God. He was behind a rock. And, and even if he, when he was behind a rock, he could not see God directly. He only could see his back. God says, no man can see me and live. He need to, needed to be covered. This holy servant, Moses... Could not see God directly. He who spoke directly with God. Could not see him directly. Same thing with the prophet Elijah. You know prophet Elijah from the book of First Kings. Uh, he uh, went out into the wilderness. Came to a mountain. Uh, Horeb I believe he was. And he was there. He was dejected. He was sad. Everything went totally opposite to what he expected. He was alone. Or so he thought at least. And then God came to him. God came and visited Elijah and spoke with him. And there were several elements, natural elements occurring at the same time. There was a strong wind. There was an earthquake. There there was a fire. But God was not in these elements. But then there was a a, a gentle blowing, the, the, the text says. And what did Elijah do? He covered his face. He covered his face. He knew God is here. His holiness is here. His majesty is here. I must cover my face. And this is from the prophet. the uh, Prophet Elijah. Sorry about that. He who did so many marvelous things. He who had been called by God. To do miracles after miracles. He had to cover his face. Moses and Elijah. You know who appeared with. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. The disciples saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. What did they do? Peter didn't know what to say or what to do. Oh Lord, let us make, like, let, make whatever word what they used, huts or whatever. Let's make places that you might go in there and be covered so we don't see all your glory, so that we are not incinerated by it. He was so afraid. The disciples were so afraid of the unveiled glory of Jesus. What is this telling us? That God is so majestic, so glorious in his holiness, that if any one of us, any human being or any created thing would be in the presence of God without being covered, They would be incinerated. They would go up in smoke. There is no one who can come before God's holiness and live unless they are covered. Now, third, we see the seraphim proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is, again, the text that I mentioned in the beginning the word holy being repeated once, twice, three times the word holy is being proclaimed. It cannot be overstated how important this attribute is, this one attribute of God. If you know nothing else from this text, if you forget everything I say, this one word should stick in your heads and in your mind that God is holy, holy. He's holy, and his holiness is displayed in his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not only heaven, not only the highest place, but the whole earth is full of his glory. Everything in creation knows and sees the glory of God. There is no excuse for anyone. No atheist. No, 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 any false religion, and no one can excuse themselves and say, I did not know about God. All of the earth is full of his glory. He is everywhere. All his holiness or his holiness can be seen everywhere. Everywhere. No one can deny it. Now forth the foundations of the thresholds tremble before God's holiness. In this vision of of God in his glory in heaven, his glory is making even the heavens tremble. The, the, the abode of God where he sits on his throne and rules. It's shaking just by his holiness. It's not even, it, it's, it's, it's close to being, to, to go under, to, to uh, being incinerated as well. God is so far above everything that even heaven itself, even his throne room, his throne shakes Before God. As soon as God comes down to his creation, everything shakes, everything trembles, everything is so afraid of God. This is the majestic holiness of God, that God is majestically holy. Now let's consider Isaiah's response in verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what I talked about earlier. Man's response to holiness is that of being completely unworthy, being nothing before God. He's so unapproachable, he's so majestic. Even the heavens shake. We can only cover our faces. We can only hope that God won't incinerate us with His holiness. And the same thing happened to Peter. I already mentioned it. In the book on the Mount of Transfiguration, he was so afraid. He didn't know what to say. And when he was called, you remember the story from uh, Luke 5. I believe he was in in the boat and Jesus was preaching to the people. And there were so many people that Jesus had to go into the boat and preach from the boat. And he told Peter, now go out a little bit. Go out into the deep sea and and throw out your nets. And of course, Peter and his, his other fishermen had been out all night. They had tried to get anything. They hadn't got anything. And he knew that, of course, Jesus knew that. So uh he was a little bit like, Alright, Jesus, you know we have tried, but on your word, I will do as you say. Alright, buddies, let's 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 humor him. Let's see what we'll do. And what happened? The nets began to fill so much that they began to break. And then when they, they they called some other boats to come and help them, and they filled the boats almost to the point that they started to sink. Now you'd think that in such an instance you would be like, oh Jesus is this powerful. Let's make a, a business deal here, Jesus. You come and do this every, every Tuesday. You'll get to keep 50% of the, of the profit. Let's, do the, let's make a deal here, Jesus. This is not the response of Peter. Peter knew that this is unnatural. This can only come from God. This is God himself speaking to me. His response was, Go away from me, Lord. For I am a sinful man. Go away. Depart, Lord. I cannot be in your presence. I am a sinful man. I am, I am ruined. That's the natural man's response to the holiness of God. Lord, go away. Go away. I am undone. I say I had the same response. Woe is me. I am ruined. Woe. Woe, woe, the word woe means to uh, have something bad happen to you, some some disaster, some disaster. Come over me because I have seen God. I have been in his presence. I have seen his glory, his holiness. Woe is me. And we understand why. This attribute, above every other attribute, is so hated by the adversaries of God, by the enemies of God. Why they hate his holiness so much? Because they know they cannot stand it. As soon as God's holiness comes, they see it in his full glory. They are so afraid. The demons shake and tremble when they saw Jesus. Why? Why? Because they knew that he is holy. And here comes he who can throw them into the abyss. They were exceedingly afraid. Now I hear sometimes very foolish things by by unbelievers and especially by atheists. Say that when I see God I will say this and this and I will make him answer to this. No you won't. You will not talk back to God. You will be so afraid. You will be down on your face. You will ask for mountains to cover you. To hide you away from the glory and the holiness of God. That is the response you will have when you are before God. No one can take it. No sinful man. No one. God is so holy. Now I'm, I'm telling you these things that, that we might have an And a a proper understanding of who God is when we come before Him every Sunday and every day, really, to worship Him, to pray to Him, to read His words, that we might know who He truly is and who we truly are. Unworthy, worms. God is not some kind of buddy some kind of boyfriend or girlfriend that you can just hang out with and say, Hello, God, please come into my life and make it great. God is holy. He is far above you and your circumstance and your little life. He's not your buddy. He's terrifyingly awesome. If he came into your life, into your living room or your bathroom, as some people say they've seen God in their bathroom You would be down on your face, pleading toward God to go away so that you are not ruined. You are not killed by his holiness. This is always the response of sinful creatures. When they appear before God, God is so glorious. Had Jesus not veiled his glory as he walked on the earth, as he was with his disciples for three years if he had not veiled his glory, they would all have gone up into smoke. There would have been nothing left of the disciples. There would have been just poof, a little smoke, and there, that would have been it. Jesus veiled his glory so that they could listen to him, be with him, sleep with him, laugh with him, cry with him, learn from him. This is the majestic holiness of God. Is this your view of God, of God in his holiness, in his glory? Or do you think of him more as a buddy, as a friend, as a, someone you can hang out with? Oh, let's do away with such, such foolish notions. Let's reform our understanding after what the Bible says. That was the majestic holiness of God. And then let's also consider his um, ethical or moral holiness as I already mentioned, the, the, what we normally mean when we talk about holiness. This means, of course, that God is separate from all sin. God is, there is no sin in him, he's sinless, he's ethically and morally perfect. And this aspect should not be so distinct from God's majestic holiness, so we don't think there are any, any relation between them. Rather, the the ethical holiness develops out of the majestic holiness. The ethical holiness or the moral holiness is also that of being separate. God is separate from sin. There is no... Sin cannot be in the presence of God. It's it's the very opposite of God. God cannot have communion with sin. Indeed, if, if, if sin got its way, then God would be God no more. That is how opposite sin is of God. If sin got its way, God would be God no more. Sin is the very opposite of God. God is holy in this sense that He... He's completely separated from all sin. He's not just holy in the the sense that He's undefiled or, or like a pure virgin... Has not been defiled. He's not like Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. Before the fall when they were innocent. Undefiled by sin. God is not morally holy in that sense. He is completely separated from all holiness. It is the very opposite of him. He simply cannot tolerate sin. Because again, it is the opposite of God. As black is the opposite of white... So holy or sin is the opposite of God. Scriptures make this very, very clear. Let's uh, let's read from one scripture: First Chronicles, chapter thirteen. First Chronicles, chapter thirteen. I just read. Book of First Chronicles this morning for my devotionals, and and the the, the book begins with all those names and the the, the lineages and, and the heritage, and uh, then we come to the where the, the stuff starts to happen. Finally, through all those those chapters in beginning. chapter thirteen, we see here that King David is considering bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This is the prelude of the story. the the the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, had been had been lost to, uh, uh, what do you call the Philistines in a war. It had been, been lost to them and then had been returned because the Philistines could not have it. They, they fell ill, there were many deaths and sickness among them. So they returned it on a cart to Israel and it had been there in a town called Kiriath-Jerim for decades now. And now David puts his mind to bring it back To a place of prominence. Bringing it to to Jerusalem. So he and the children of Israel gathered now to bring it back. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 6. David and all Israel went up to Baal. That is Kiriath-Jerim. Which belongs to Judah. To bring up from there the ark of God. The Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim, Where his name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Asa and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs, with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Asa put out his hand. To hold the ark, because the oxen nearly upset it, the anger of the Lord burned against Asa, so he struck him down, because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. Now we see in these, these verses a story which has caused tremendous amount of problems for modern scholars and modern theologians, thinking how can God be so cruel? To strike down a man who's just trying to do the right thing, being noble, protecting the ark. What's going on here? What is he doing? This man, Azza, text says he was with the ark on the cart, he was the closest man to the ark. And so it happened a little bit of an accident along the way. They were driving up to Jerusalem. We know the roads aren't very even. They, ha- they didn't have any asphalt roads back then. It was bumpy. It had holes. It had rocks. Things could happen along the way. And probably something like that happened. It says in, in the text I read from that the oxen nearly upset it. The ark, that is. In your text, you might say that they stumbled. So the ark began to probably tip over, to fall off the of the cards. And. Uh, Asa. Being close to it. Did what everyone would have done. I imagine. Most of us would have done the same thing. We see the Ark of the Covenant. Covered in gold. This, this beautiful thing. And he's starting to tip over. It's starting to fall off the cart Into the mud. Into the dirt. Onto the rocks. Maybe breaking. So Asa just puts out his hand. Tries to stop it from falling. That's what He does. And God's response is to strike him down so that he died. Herein we see the moral holiness of God. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol, a representation of God's presence among his people. The Ark of the Covenant was to be handled with uh, very specific instructions there were only Levites who were allowed to handle it, to carry it. And that is one of the things that they should do. They should carry it. They should put long poles in rings that were attached to the ark and that they should carry it on, on, on their shoulders. But instead we see here that they had departed from it. They had put it on a cart. They were, they were already violating the law of God here. And one more thing, very important, is that we see in the book of Numbers, is that the sons of Kohab, those who were allowed to carry the ark, they were only to do so through these poles. They were not to touch the ark. The, The text says, the sons of Kohab shall come to carry them, the ark and all the holy objects, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. The law said very clearly not to touch the ark. It was to be carried specifically with these poles. They were not allowed to touch it. No one was. Only the, the, uh, the high priest was allowed to go into the holies or Holy of Holies. Only he, and only once a year, was allowed to approach the ark now asa was not a high priest and even so he was not allowed to touch it and yet he did he did what seemed like a noble act to him but before god it was an unholy act it was an act of disobedience he was sinful now the dirt and the rocks which it might have fallen into. It's not sinful in themselves. They do what they do. Dirt is dirt. It cannot be anything else than dirt. And rocks are rocks. They cannot be. They, they do exactly what their maker has made them to be. They are not unholy by being rocks and being dirt. But Asa did something which was unholy. He touched the ark which he was instructed Very clearly, not to do, and so he was struck down. God is not defiled by work by by rocks or dirt, but God is defiled by us being disobedient, by us being rebellious, by us not following what He has said and what He has commanded. God's holiness is attacked sin. This was an attack on God's holiness. Physical inanimate objects does not attack God's holiness, but our sinful actions attack God's perfect ethical holiness. And this is what we see happen here. This This story should be a very solemn reminder to us of how serious God takes sin how serious God takes His holiness, His perfect moral holiness. R.C. Sproul has said that sin is cosmic treason against God. It's treason. What do you do with those who commit treason? You execute them. Asa did something which was sinful, and God struck him down. Do we understand the holiness of God? Do we understand the importance of it? Do we understand the seriousness of our sin and how abominable it is before God? Do we understand that we must repent if we are to come before God? If we are to come before Him at all, to talk with Him, Call him our God. Call him our Father. To even live. Someone has to come and cover us. Someone has to come. And take away the wrath of God. Because all our sins deserve only one thing. Death. But that someone has come. That someone. Is Jesus Christ. And he. Who himself is God. Has covered us with his righteousness. He has taken away all our sins. All those acts of treason towards God. That deserve immediate death. Like Asa was was put to death. He has taken on, on himself. And he has covered us with his righteousness. The righteousness of God. He has done that which no human being or created being at all could ever do reconcile us with a holy God. Because again, if sin got its way and we all have sins in our life if those sins got its way then God would be God no more. Sin must be punished. People ask me sometimes, why does why why couldn't God just forgive? Why couldn't he be just a forgiving God? Why why, why does someone have to die? Why does someone have to pay the penalty of sin? And this is why? Because God is holy. God would not be God if sin was was unpunished. If no one took the penalty. If no one paid the price. There was, would be no justice and God's holiness would not be anymore. It could not exist. He would not be God. We all have sins, as I said. We all know that we do. It's not an easy teaching to come before the holiness of God and see how sinful we are and how unworthy we are to come before him and to be in his presence, to call him God. And, beloved, I don't want to leave you with a sense of impossibility. How can we come before God? What are we to do? I want to leave you with with an encouragement. Some points of encouragement. Let this doctrine, the holiness of God, encourage you not to draw away from God, but to draw nearer to Him. Let me... Let me give you a few few ways to encourage us. God's holiness convicts us of our sin. Convicts us of our unworthiness. i already said that. But it also prevents us from being proud and arrogant. When you see the holiness of God, you will not be proud. You will not come before a holy God and be a very, very proud man. You cannot be. You understand how unworthy you are. Your pride will just disappear. Your pride will disappear. You will not be arrogant. You will approach Him knowing that you are unworthy. And God's holiness will also help us to approach Him properly, appropriately. Not to come before Him indifferently. Justly like he is some kind of buddy that you're hanging out with on Sunday mornings. no you will come before him, knowing how holy he is, worshiping him reverently, respectfully. You will not come before God as a as a school child coming to school, not wanting to hear, not wanting to listen, not wanting to learn, being oh, Disobedient to their teachers, you will come before him knowing he is holy. Reverently will approach him with respect. And God's holiness will make us eager to conform to the image of God. As we see the perfect Savior, the perfect man. Before us. Jesus Christ. As we see him and his life and his example. We are eager to follow that. We, will, we want to be like that. We want to imitate it. We want to be like him. We see his holiness. We see his perfect life. Sinless life. And we strive and we strive to become like him. Let God's holiness help you. to Find an example to live holy and God's holiness will make us patient and content with all things God in his infinite wisdom he forms us after his likeness he does everything in holiness he forms us to become holy The Bible says that he who has began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Jesus Christ. He will perfect it. Let the holiness of God encourage you to be patient with what you have, content with what you have. God's holiness forms you to be holy. So, beloveds, let's take heart in What we have learned today about God's holiness, let's strive with greater zeal to become more like him, to live holy lives. And for unbelievers, understand that this might seem boring. This might seem like something that just those stupid Christians talk about. But one day you will face the glory of God, his holiness, and it will not be boring. It will, it's only boring now because you don't see it perfectly. You, it's not been appeared to you. Your eyes have not been opened. But it will not be boring when he comes in his glory, his fury, his fire. You will not be bored. You will be scared Oh, flee then. Flee from your sins. Repent and go to him who can cover you before God's holiness. Go to Christ. Go to him who has perfectly accomplished that which you could never do. Repent and believe in him. He's a meek savior. He will receive you. As sinful as you are. His grace is even greater. Go to him. Flee to him before the wholeness comes and devours you. Do this this very day. I call you before God. I call you to repent. Amen. Let's end there. Good God, we thank you for the word you have given us this Sunday. We ask that we would be impacted by it. That our lives would be transformed. Oh Lord. We want to live holy lives. Even though we're not able to. Oh Lord. We want to imitate you in everything that we do. Help us Lord to live holy. Help us to become more like our Savior. Our Lord. Help us to do away with the sins in our lives. To repent of them. To mortify them. To kill them Lord. Oh good God. We can't even come before you without our Lord Jesus Christ. We are nothing before you, like worms, nothing, unworthy. But in his goodness, in his righteousness, we approach you, Lord. And we ask for those who have not Christ, that you would be gracious, that you would save them, that you would call them Lord with an an irresistible calling. Oh, God, please have mercy on them. We ask for those around us, for those who live here, in the villages, in the countries where we are, our closest ones. Oh, Lord, please save you who are a saving God. Be merciful to them. We thank you again, Lord, for the word you have given us, for the fellowship that we have. We thank you for our Lord, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.